morning. Good morning. How you guys doing? Good. Why don't we all stand? My name is Michael. It's good to be here with you guys. Always good to be here at Ohio Community Church. As you can see, I don't have a band with me or anything, so uh, you are the choir. I guess I'm the choir director. Let's go ahead and sing loud to our Lord. He's worthy of it. We'll sing this old hymn. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, Thank mm-hmm. you. 
of what you've done 
that we're adopted in this big, huge, grand family that will live for eternity. Even the people that are surrounding us right now, this huge family that you've created because of your work, because of your love. We thank you, God. Amen. Amen. Um, it's, uh, I don't know how to begin saying this. Uh, I started doing landscaping this last week. Yeah, and uh, I'm a musician, so that's tough. But it was really cool just to have this experience. We uh, got these kumquat trees, these little orange things are great. And I planted it in by a window of our kitchen, and it was so cool to uh, reach Sabbath, like reach my wife and I's day of rest, and to look out the window and then see like the fruit of our labor, you know? <laughs> and uh, it, it actually, it really did help, because it, it reminded me that the Lord has created six days for us to work, six days to put our hands to something or our minds to something, but then he gave us this day of rest, like the day where we can actually take a deep breath and be thankful for what we were capable of doing throughout the week. And so um, as we sing this next song and we make ourselves aware of the Holy Spirit, let's enter into his rest. And if it's helpful just to kind of open your hands out and to uh, put yourself in a posture of just saying, God, I'm aware that you're here. I'm aware that you've created this day for me to slow down, to stop working, and to into the peace that you offer. Um, let's do that in this song. Let's do that as we sing this. Let's take that deep breath and let the anxiety leave and into the rest that God has given us. There's nothing worth more that could ever come close. Nothing can compare. You're our living hope in your presence. I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves where my heart becomes free and my shame is on. Yeah. 
no place that we could go where we could hide from your spirit, from your presence. But God, we're weak, we're distracted sometimes. And so we need to be made aware of your goodness, aware that you're a father that is near to us. Before we move on to the next moment, let's Again, rejoice in the Father, Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we gather together. It's in his name that he's brought us together, adopted us into this family. It's the work that he's doing in our lives. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful name it is, nothing compares to this, what a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. Yes, we're aware, Jesus, that you are king, you're a wonderful God. What a wonderful name it is, what a Before you take a seat, we want to encourage you to greet the people around you. Make some friends right now. Go ahead and say hello. 
Well, good morning, good morning. How's everybody doing? Let's try that again. Good morning, how's everybody doing? It's so encouraging to see people just connecting. I mean, just uh, it's not just a, hey, how you doing, Is take my seat, but everybody's joyful to see each other. It's such an inspiration to get together with the body of Christ and for people to love each other, to care, and be concerned. So I want to welcome you this morning to La Jolla Community Church. My name is Ian O'Mara, as the screen says, Director of Community Life. And I wanted to, do you have your bulletins? Can you hold those up real quick? Yeah, if you open those up on the inside cover is our prayer and connection card. It is such, it's such a, an awesome opportunity to connect with you each week. It's, it's something that we just all take a few minutes, a few seconds of our time. There's pens in the seat back in front of you. And we just throw our names down there and we throw a prayer request. No matter how big the prayer request or how little it is, we want to pray with you. We have a team that prays for you throughout the week. So we're going to take the next 10 to 15 seconds. There's a pen in front of everybody in the chair. Just grab that out and we'll fill those out for the next 10 to 15 seconds. Thank you for taking that time to fill those out. Uh, if you just, after the service, the ushers will come by and receive the tithes and offering. Your bulletin folds directly in half, and those prayer and connection cards will come out, and you can put those into the offering baskets after the service. But we have a big announcement. At the end of this month is our life group launch. How many people have participated in a life group here at La Jolla Community Church? Isn't it awesome? Isn't it a great privilege? And I was in my life group, and we're, we're going through Hebrews starting the, this week. And there's a, in chapter 10, it talks about getting together, spurring one another on towards loving good deeds and not giving up meeting. And it's something that just reminding me that it's, we can't do this all by ourselves. We can't be an island out there separated from everybody. We need to be in community. That's why we're called the body. If we're separated, we're not part of the body. But when we're together, we can love and encourage and spur one another on towards loving good deeds. And it's such a great reminder because it made me think, where do I want to be in 2020? Not what am I going to do for 2019, but where do I want to be in 2020? Do I want to be closer to God? Do I want to be closer to his people? And the way to do that for me is with that life group. As we learn together, we live together, we do life together, we encourage each other. So I want to encourage you to get involved. We're going to be having sign-ups at the end of the month. If you have questions, if you want to lead a group, or if you want to get information on a group, come see me after the service, and I'll be right out there. Well, this next announcement is a two-parter. It's a praise and then for a little bit of information. The praise report is our junior high and our youth camp is completely filled and that's an awesome thing. Can I get a round of applause for that? <laughs> Kids are going up to camp. They're gonna be hearing about Jesus at Forest Home. It's gonna be an amazing opportunity. And the second part is our high school camp is still open. That's kind of open until they go. So if you have a high schooler that's interested or you know a high schooler, let them uh, get in contact with Ryan, our youth director, or you can ask questions right out from me at the table after the service. But one of the things that is important here at LJCC, it's one of our values, is we're, we're rooted in prayer. Prayer is important. Prayer is the fabric of who we are. We get together to pray. We connect to pray. Prayer is so much a part of who we are. So we're going to take time to pray right now. Laura, will you come and pray for us, please? Our Father in heaven, you are worthy of all praise. You say in your word that you have saved us so that we can praise you publicly. And we who are gathered here as yours, praise your holy name. 
We praise you as creator and savior. You forgive and sanctify. You are the one who sees us, our rescue and rock, the unchanging one who convicts and cleanses and comforts, and the giver of everything we have. In this week ahead, speak to each of us, Lord God, of anything you would have us remove from our homes, or habits, or hearts, anything that dishonors you. Speak to us of anything you would have us start to do. Guide us in using the gifts you've given us in the way you intended when you gave them to us. And we thank you for your word, the great gift, for the unchanging truth you've put into our hands, for this way that you've given us to know you. Thank you for the ways you speak and transform us through reading it, in our daily time alone with you, through Steve's teaching, in our life groups, in the Pathways to Faith class, community Bible study, and Bible study fellowship. Guard us from anything, Father, that would keep us from reading the Bible. And thank you for the teachers you've given us to help us understand it. Guide them. Guide them and us. Give them and us ears to hear and hearts to understand. Open our eyes as we read. Open our minds and hearts. We want to hear your very personal word to each of us about who you are and who we are as yours. In this new year, may your will be done in each of us individually and in all of us as a church family and as a nation. May our leaders be led by you, almighty God. We rest in you as the sovereign one, the one in whose hands we safely dwell. We praise you as the one who rules over all. Thank you for making us yours. May we live like it for your glory and honor. And in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Well, thank you. Uh, we are rooted in prayer indeed. Uh, we're also rooted in the word of God. And today, last week we talked about effective prayer in the series Connecting with God. Uh, today we want to talk about inspiring Bible study. I think it's fantastic that, that Laura uh, was doing the prayer today. And Laura um, is the embodiment of inspired Bible teaching. She teaches uh, community Bible study every Thursday morning in the village of La Jolla. I think about 130 women attend that. Uh, fantastic ministry, Laura. Thank you for that. She's also an amazing writer. If you haven't read her book, uh, 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 Humility and How I Achieved It. Now, what was it called? It was, uh, no, you know, words we left unsaid. Phenomenal, phenomenal uh, book. And so the fact that you have people who are working hard to master their capacity to serve God is a really beautiful thing. When we're talking about inspiring Bible study, we're not talking about inspiring Bible teachers. Uh, when, I, when I gave the, the staff the, uh, the schedule for the year, uh, preaching schedule, uh, Ian said, inspiring Bible study, I got a problem with that. It sounds a little bit you know, like you're bragging. I said, it's not about me getting up. Another inspiring sermon for you today. Uh, it, it's, it's, you know, another inspiring Bible study. It's about the fact that when people start to authentically, genuinely study God's word, they are inspired. So inspiring Bible study is what's supposed to happen when you take seriously the opportunity, the privilege of studying God's word. You are inspired. You're filled with the spirit of God. You're filled with a sense of wonder and awe, and you're compelled to want to know more. So for me, I didn't start reading the Bible until I was uh, in late at the end of, end of my high school uh, career. Uh, so I, I had never met anybody who had read the Bible or could talk about it. Now my mom and dad, 
uh, English Protestant, Irish Catholic, both had massive opinions about religion. Uh, they would express them very loudly, uh, sometimes violently, you know, and it was, it was, but they didn't know anything about the Bible. They didn't read it, they, they didn't think to read it. So I, as a, as a kid, all the way to the end of high school, never ever met an, an, an adult who could articulate why we would read the Bible, who cares? And so for me, it was a wonderful old book, but who cares? It's irrelevant, I don't know anybody who's read it, nobody quotes it, nobody says, oh, let's check the Bible. It wasn't until that time that I, 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 some of you have heard me say this, I picked up a Bible to, I picked it up defensively. Uh, because we used to surf off, off uh, in Santa Cruz, um, it's, uh, it, it, off a of pleasure point, there was this wall, and on it, it said, Jesus surfs. I thought, what kind of idiot puts graffiti on a wall that says, Jesus surfs? And I thought, oh my gosh, they're out there. They're out there, I better be defended. And guys would come to me, hey, dude, have you heard about Jesus? I'm like, no, get away from me, you know, kind of thing. So I read the Bible just so I could say, hey, I've read it, and I can refute it. And, and, and then I, the craziest thing happened. Oh, then one time I was on the beach, some guys come up and say, hey, man, do you guys know Jesus? I'm like, no. He said, do you want to know Jesus? you want to see Jesus? I'm like, yeah, sure. Okay. And these guys are, must have been high as a kite, new, newbies. And they said, we're going to show you Jesus right now. So they start praying. And me and my friend are like, I can't even believe this is happening. I thought, if this is what's in the Bible, because nothing happened, and these guys were discouraged, they walked away, and we're thinking, these, anybody who, who talks about Jesus or the Bible is a nutcase, because all the normal people, normal people, just normally screwed up people I know and live with, they never talk that way. So I read it with some trepidation, but again, defensively, to say, I'm going to read it, and I'm going to be ready for these people. Next time they come up and, and, and accost me. And of course, uh, I was accosted by the Spirit of God. Because I, I opened it up, started reading it. Uh, first, I was a little confused because I think I've read this story four times now. Because I was reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and I'm like, did I read this? Uh, and I f eventually I figured out, oh, that's same thing, four different ways, all right. But as I was captivated by the word of God, I said, why has no one ever told me about this? Why have I been neglected, so to speak, spiritually? I've been pummeled with religious opinions that make no sense, but I've never had anybody sit down and say, do you know this is the word of God? You might find it interesting. So instead of being a person defending myself against God and all of his well-intended representatives, I found myself wanting to be a champion for God uh, among all those crazy people. Uh, but I wanted to do it in a way that would allow me to articulate the actual word of God, not my well-intended misperceptions of it. So for me, that's what inspiring Bible study is all about. Reading the word of God saying, this is amazing. I need help understanding all the implications of this. And that's what God, God connected me to some Christians, some people who were trying to start a Young Life Club at my high school. And they said, hey, you've been reading the Bible, you might be interested in this. And one thing led another. And then I went to seminary, not to become a pastor, because I thought I wanted to study this in the original languages. I wanted to understand all the things it's connected to so I could be a heads up person in our culture. So inspiring Bible study to me is a revolutionary step forward for everybody who embraces it. It will rock your world, it will disrupt your world, it will reorganize your world, and realign it according to God's purposes. Now, just having said that, I could sit down, but I won't. Because there's a few more things I wanna to say to you. If you, just, if you. if you jump in with me uh, for the next few moments about the fact that it could be that the Bible is the most inspiring book you ever encounter, it'll make every other book you encounter make a lot more sense. For example, if you're a literary person and if you don't know the Bible, you're missing out a lot of what you're reading in novels. Great literature, almost all of it borrows from the narrative of the Bible. 
If you've ever read Shakespeare uh, or seen a play, it makes no sense but for the Bible. Uh, and almost every modern theme, uh, to this day, if I read a review uh, uh, on a book, it's often that they'll say, oh, yeah, this is obviously this is a story of Job retold as, you know. So inspiring Bible study, why, why do we even think we should do this? Uh, why? Because we believe that the Bible emerges in history, it's rooted in geography, it's a unified literary whole, and it is the Word of God. Those first three are verifiable facts. The, the fourth is a theological conclusion. Uh, this is courtesy of Bill Creasy. Some of you are familiar with Bill Creasy, uh, a longtime professor of literature at UCLA, a phenomenal Bible teacher from Malibu to uh, all the way around the coast down to uh, La Jolla. And so <clears throat> this was his conclusion as a, as a professional academic, you know, literary professor that the Bible emerges in history, is rooted in geography, is a unified literary whole, and our conclusion is that it's the word of God. So hopefully that's a, a helpful summary for you as you think about this. Because inspiring Bible study means if you don't understand how this emerged from history, you're not gonna understand the impact, the ultimate impact of it. If you don't understand that it's rooted in geography, not just a people, uh, Israel, but a place, uh, also called Israel, uh, if you don't understand that, you're going to miss a lot of the nuances and a lot of, a lot of the, the support and connectivity that makes the Bible come alive from that First Testament or the Old Testament to the New Testament. Uh, it's a unified literary whole, which is a not insignificant thing. 66 books written over a very long period of time by authors in different cultures through different languages that, that when you start in Genesis and end in Revelation, there's a through line. You think, this is incredibly consistent. It's as if the same person wrote this, but that's not the case. So that's what's compelling to me as well. That I didn't know that when I first started reading it, but as I was working my way through it, I thought, this is an amazing narrative that keeps building and building and building and has this incredible moment, uh, denouement, you know, this moment of, wow, Jesus shows up and confirms and fulfills, and then this promise at the end about his return in Revelation. So, so that's where we, uh, we're coming from in this church. We believe these things. And so uh, we want to do, because we, we believe it's the word of God, we want to do God's word accurately. That's theology, theos, God, uh, logos, word. God's word is the basis for theology. Uh, you can have a theology apart from God's word. You can have an opinion. My parents had you know, well-developed theologies of, of everything that made no sense because it was not rooted in God's word. It was rooted in uh, you know, versions of tradition or misinformation or wishful thinking or something, but it was not coherent theology because it wasn't rooted in God's word. It came out of their tradition, their experience, uh, their lack of knowledge. And so why do we want to do theology? Theology is the immediate outcome of reading the Bible. You form opinions, you form impressions, you form interpretive understanding. So when these guys that were the first adults I ever met who, who had actually read the Bible and knew it well, said to me, hey, I hear you're reading the Bible. How's that going? Well, it's fascinating. Well, tell me what you're reading. Oh, yeah, I read this story about Jesus talking to all these people by this lake. And uh, they all forgot to bring their lunch, apparently. So Jesus, I think, pulled out his lunch. I started sharing it, inspired everybody there to share their lunch. And thankfully, the guy did not start laughing. He just said, wow, that's fascinating. That's your conclusion from the feeding of the 5,000. I said, yeah. He said, all right. He said, you know, one thing about reading the Bible that's really fascinating is there's always a context. And 
and I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, there's something before and something after, and there's always a reason for what's in the Bible. He said, let's, let's read that together. And he, and he said, you know, it seems to imply here that Jesus was using this as an opportunity to, to give his authority, to show his authority. And this was actually a miracle. And that nobody was sharing their lunch. They were receiving their lunch. And all of a sudden, this interesting conversation percolates up, and I'm realizing, oh, my gosh. This is, is the difference between haphazard theology with misperception, misperceptions of the Word of God and something that's grounded in something that would be credible literarily. Let's read it in context. Let's not read into it what we think it should say. Let's read out of it what it actually says. So you might notice when you start reading the Bible and are inspired by it, that you, you, you have to do the work to say what is really being said here. The interpretive part will be interesting as you apply it. But what I've, I've heard so many people say, oh yeah, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. Yes, you can, but you're violating it when you do that. You're violating it. And so this guy said, let's look at this in context. And I said, oh my gosh, yeah, that's fascinating. Now, what I would do with that to apply it in my life could be variable, depending on how I applied it. But from then on, I realized, oh my gosh, this really does say one thing. Applied many ways, creatively, but really it's saying Jesus has the authority to multiply loaves and fish and feed people, physically but also spiritually. So, so theology reveals God's will and God's ways. Theology is, it has got to be rooted and grounded in God's word uh, for it to be a biblical theology, of course. And theology shapes us in knowing and loving God. If you are not reading the Bible on its own terms, and if you're not doing careful theology, then you don't have much of an opportunity to get to know the God who's trying to reveal himself to us in scripture. You don't really love that God. You maybe love a version of yourself that you've projected onto that God. You see where this goes? So everybody is a theologian, that's what's fascinating. And so the question is, you're a theologian, what kind of theology do you represent? Is it the theology of Steve? The theology of Mark? You know? theology of Bill, the theology of Anne, or is it the theology of God that comes out of his word that you get to then take and creatively apply it in lots of ways? Because ultimately the end point of this is knowing and loving God. It's not just being a Bible termite or a Bible tick. You burrow in and you become an authority on, on all kinds of things that are irrelevant to the rest of the world. Because ultimately the, the, the place this takes us, inspiring Bible study, always takes us to a place of social impact. As I started reading the Bible, something was changing in me. And as I was talking about what was happening to me, these, these wise people who were guiding me said, yeah, I think that's, the, I, that's what the Word of God does. God's speaking to you. God's inviting you into a relationship with Him. Now, these people weren't manipulating me or exploiting me because then when I went to seminary and, and, and got all the tools, I thought back on what they had said and done. It was so authentic and credible. I didn't look back and go, oh my gosh, that was a cult. That was, a, that was an exploitive situation. Oh, those people were so patient and kind and respectful in helping me uh, own this. They weren't imposing something on me. They were helping me work through something. Uh, and that's the power. Because when William Booth walked through the streets of London, he said, I cannot look at one more child being abused by, by being worked to death or being abandoned in the street, streets filled with running sewage. I can't stand seeing guys in carriages go by who have all the money and people who are destitute and dying of every disease possible that would be easily remedied if we had some basic hygiene going on. It just ticked him off. 
because he was a student of the Word of God. Uh, he was a go-for-it guy, and he said, this is wrong. And all of a sudden, God starts to work through William Booth to say, hey, William, what's your theology? Where will your theology take you as you see this stuff and get ticked off by it? And so he ends up starting this thing called the Salvation Army. Maybe you've heard of it. A massive 19th century renewal movement that touches lives to this day. It was the result of a theological encounter with the Word of God. Meanwhile, William Wilberforce, member of parliament, wealthy, privileged person, can't stand the idea that we're enslaving people. He spends 50 years working on uh, abolition. The, the, he wanted to destroy the legislation that allows slavery to exist. And you know who supported him in it? His life group. They met in a little tiny village just outside of London. Now it's a suburb of London called Clapham. And these wealthy guys would get together uh, once a week and they'd study the Word of God. They'd say, hey, how's it going? How can we pray for each other? What's on your heart? And we'll, every week, William Wilberforce would say, my heart burns for the fact that we're exploiting people made in the image of God. It's so wrong. I, it makes my, 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 my taste feel bitter every time I think about being a British citizen that we would allow this to happen. And so think about that. 50 years on his deathbed, the message came, um, William, They've, they've, they've struck down slavery. He died the day that Parliament said it's no longer okay to own slaves. A social impact from a guy who was inspired by his study of the Word of God. The YMCA, exactly the same thing. I could give you endless stories about social impact from people who said, you know what, the Word of God is compelling me to look at my life differently and to do some things differently. I'm, not, I'm no longer okay with the status quo. The inspiring Bible study is a revolutionary and disruptive thing. You're dangerous if you're studying the Bible. You're really dangerous and probably wacky if you're not studying it correctly. Uh, you're people who offer people Kool-Aid, uh, who arm yourself for Armageddon and, and, you know, and do crazy things. But the people who are inspired by Bible study and do it in a way that produces sound theology, you, what you can tell about them is that they know God's word and they love God. And that immediately connects them to wanting to know people in their situation and love people. If you ever meet somebody who's, who claims to be a great Bible scholar and they're mean toward people, they're bogus. But somehow they've managed to make it about them. They have an overweening sense of their own power and authority and they're abusing it. There's never an abuse of authority when people are inspired in Bible study. They start to they look and sound like Jesus and they start to have qualities like this. Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, uh, and self-control. Did I say faithfulness in there somewhere? Yes. <laughs> and these are qualities that you can't help but admire and love and appreciate. You know, I, if I knew that no matter what part of the political spectrum anybody represented, that they had those in them in the name of Jesus and the knowledge of God's word, I'd think, I'm okay with them being elected. Because I think they'd probably figure things out. What I get worried about is that people have no theology and they're taking on responsibility that affects people's lives. What's the basis for their authority? Where does their compassion come from? Out of convenience? When it's no longer convenient, there's no longer any compassion. They will be people who gain the system versus transform the system. All right. The Bible then is inspired and equips us with practical theological skills. This is where Paul, the apostle, writes to Timothy, his apprentice, pastor at the church in Ephesus. He says, all scripture is inspired and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Are you willing to be taught, rebuked, 
<laughs> corrected and trained in righteousness. Uh, he says all scriptures inspired. Do you know what Bible he was quoting? The First Testament. This is Paul. He's writing a letter to Ephesus. Which we, we know this is scripture. This was not scripture for him. This was him quoting. Or, 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 he's, he's doing theology out of the Old Testament right at this moment. He's saying everything I've read in the First Testament. Uh, the Torah. The Nevi'im. The prophets. And the Ketuvim. All the writings. Proverbs. Psalms. Etc. Tanakh. Those three things. Torah. Nevi'im. Ketuvim. Tanaka, you know. Those consonants make Tanakh. The Bible read, Paul read, the Bible Jesus read was the Tanakh. It was the first testament, we call, what we call the Old Testament. And he said, that's inspired. Now, of course, in God's hands, in, in, in Christ's ministry, these words that Paul writes then become part of the inspired word of God. But do you get what he's saying here? He's not quoting himself. Paul doesn't say, I'm not, I'm quoting Timothy, I'm quoting my letter to the Ephesians. Oh, wait, I'm writing the letter to the Ephesians. In real time, God is inspiring him to see the authority in the First Testament, and God uses it to create something we call the, the New Testament. Why? So that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every good work that we do. Uh, some of you heard me say, Janet and I were uh, <clears throat> going to get on a plane to Dallas in October, and we're standing in the TSA line where they're going through all of her guns and stuff. And um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I look back, and there's this tall guy standing there toward the, the front of the line, and I said, oh my gosh, Janet, there's Francis Collins. I just watched a podcast of him, Francis Collins, who mapped the human genome, is the head of the National Institutes of Health. And on this podcast, he talked about how as a practicing scientist and physician, he, as an atheist, he came to know Jesus. And I thought, aren't you, I said, isn't it awesome to know that somebody is messing around with the human genome and in charge of the National Institutes of Health is, is, a, is a very enthusiastic follower of Jesus? Does that screw up his professional career? No, it informs it, it shapes it. Is there a better scientist walking around today than him? I mean, there's lots like him, but wouldn't you say, my gosh, he's the poster child of great science. This is what we're talking about, equipped for every good work. So it opens our eyes to a larger world, the, lar the world that God owns, the world that God created, the world that God is redeeming. And so Stephen, it says, one of the deacons, having just been giving an account of why he believes in Jesus as the hope of Israel, and in front of all these religious authorities who are not happy he's there, He's giving this spirited, informed, biblical uh, presentation to all these religious leaders. And at some point, uh, he, it says, full of the Holy Spirit, he looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. His eyes were open to a larger world. Immediately they stoned him, they killed him. But did his life end then? No. He was killed. Uh, but his life didn't end. He saw a larger world that, that, that gave context to the world he lived in. He was willing to give his testimony uh, because he, he understood that larger context for the world that we live in. It teaches us then to thrive in this world. Uh, we, and Paul writes again to the, the people in Corinth, we have this treasure, the gospel of Jesus, in jars of clay, that is us, our, our fallible, imperfect humanity, gets to bear this awesome gift and treasure from God. Why? To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned. Why? Because Jesus is always with us. We can even be struck down, but we cannot be destroyed. 
To this day, we talk about Stephen. So Stephen's ministry and testimony lives on. This word, uh, this inspired word of God calls us to a journey of discovery, a personal journey of discovery in the company of other people. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Can you imagine Francis Collins saying, wow, you know, uh, this human genome thing, I wonder what we should do about it. Lord, give me wisdom and guidance. All of a sudden, you go, whoa, I like that. He's a brilliant scientist, and he's praying for wisdom and guidance from God. Craig Venter, a great scientist here in town, big institute, coincidentally has his name on the building. Um, he says, you know, if I, if I win the race, Francis, and I, I, I map it first, I'm going to exploit it and license it and make a, a lot of money from it. And Francis Collins says, well, if I do, it's all free. Can you imagine Francis Collins in the quiet of his study later that day and say, Lord, is it really, does it really need to be all free? Yes, Francis, that's a very good idea. Okay. See, so we get to process all this stuff with, with, with the Lord. Can you imagine Francis talking to some of his brothers and sisters in Christ? Going, hey, I got this big challenge. You know, what do we do about it? And what do you think? And so it's beautiful to think that God surrounds our competence, our knowledge, all of our informed uh, experiences that make, us make it possible for us to make good choices. And he gives us something bigger and better still. And so it reveals a world enslaved and needing rescue and restoration because we're all fallible. We can all game the system. We can all make the Bible into something that is for our benefit, not for the benefit of others. And that's the beautiful thing of the accountability we have in community. It's like, hey, that's a great idea and everything, but uh, that doesn't really sound like God's way of doing stuff. We go, oh, yeah, you're right. See, Paul uh, writes to the Corinthians again and says, look, the God of this age, this small g God, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He's letting on to something, a power out there that's not equal to God, but has influence in our lives if we're not careful, if we're not paying attention. This is not a superstitious thing. There's a God in every rock. Watch out. You know, better be nice to the tree or it'll whack you. He's saying there's, there's power, there's spiritual power out there, and it's not all benevolent or benign. So what, what, we're enslaved by whom or what? Again, Paul writes to the people in Ephesus, for our struggle is not against the flesh, against flesh and blood. It's not people who are our enemies. You can have conflict with people all day long. They are not your enemies. People are always um, people trying to process stuff. They might be victims of the enemy. Satan might be motivating somebody to do something wrong. But ultimately, if we make people our enemy, we're, we're looking at the wrong source for, for the conflict. Uh, that people can do problematic things, we need to remove them from society, or we need to hold them accountable. People ultimately are not our enemy. Satan, the devil, is our enemy. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This sounds like uh, there's, a, there's a monster in my closet under my bed talk, but it's not. Uh, this is a description of reality. So much so that it's, it's now considered the inspired word of God. We read this letter not as an interesting missive from Paul to some people in Ephesus. And who cares where that is or why he wrote it. Instead we say we care about it because it speaks to us as the word of God. It's a, it's a continuation of what God inspired in the Tanakh. And all of a sudden we have this glimpse of a world that we, we saw a little glimpse in Genesis uh, chapter 3. This malevolent force is trying to distract Adam and Eve from 
obeying God, trusting God. And we see him popping up every once in a while. We don't get a lot of development about it until we see this. We think, wow, should I be freaking out right now? Or just well-informed right now? So how does this happen? How, how do we become enslaved? Because if you say it to most people, they're offended. Hey, nobody's enslaving me. You know, I'm, I'm a free person. In fact, I don't believe that garbage. I like the movie Rosemary's Baby, and I thought The Exorcist was interesting. But I don't believe that stuff. I left it at the theater. That's where Satan wants you to think you left it. So how does this happen? How are we enslaved? Three things. Lies, idols, and demons. Lies we tell ourselves and hear from others. They could be, you know, the lies that dysfunctional parents told you. You're not worth anything. You're, you're, you're ugly. You're not, you know, you don't have anything to offer. It could be lies that culture tells you. You know, you, you have no safety unless you do this or don't do that. Uh, but they're lies that we tell ourselves or hear from others uh, that enslave us. Idols. Idols are non-animate, inanimate things that are made by somebody else to which we imbue power. Idols to whom we ascribe power and become attached, blinded, and bound. Israel was riddled with idols. So they kept, uh, it was a problem for Israel because people became superstitious and said, oh my gosh, I've got to please the idol. I've got to propitiate with the idol. I've got to honor the idol. And the prophets that God raised up said, the idols are holding you back. They're inanimate, irrelevant objects to which you give power, and then it has power over you. And the problem is those idols end up being connected to the third category, this demonic oppression and possession via all kinds of things. Demons are simply malevolent creatures that are in rebellion against God. They're not equal to God. It's not in this corner the devil, in this corner God. They're not equal and opposite. They're just malevolent, rebellious creations of God. It's a whole other sermon. But how, how do we open ourselves up to this demonic oppression and possession? Well, uh, have you ever done a Ouija board? I, I mean, think of, I, I can't think of any kid who's not been at a slumber party or a, or a social event and done a Ouija board. Or a person who's not read the horoscope. Uh, how about a seance? Horoscopes, seances, Ouija boards, pagan or satanic rituals, fetishes, mantras, blasphemy, dehumanizing deviant practices. These are all ways that we compromise our humanity and give the devil a foothold. Uh, when it says don't give the devil a foothold, that word foothold is topos, from what we get topographic maps. Don't give the devil any turf in your life. Don't give the devil claim to your real estate. And when the devil comes to squat on your property because you've been doing Ouija boards and all these other things, you're simply opening yourself up to spiritual influences that can be um, co-opting you at some point. And what begins as an oppression, a harassment, becomes ultimately for some people a possession and they're, they're engulfed. Very rare for people to be possessed by Satan. And yet, uh, I can tell you that exorcism is a very real thing. It's not a, a goofy thing that somebody does because they don't understand modern psychology. Uh, exorcists, trained exorcists are people who say, look, we understand detachment disorders, we understand all the psychotic issues that can lead people to have a break from reality. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, uh, at core, somebody whose identity and ego uh, has been co-opted by a malevolent spiritual force that really has no power over them, but that they give them. So that's why in the name of Jesus, those powers uh, are shattered. So we're not supposed to be walking around all nervous about Satan. We're supposed to be just so preoccupied with the incredible love and grace of Jesus that, these, that we can refute these kinds of influences and see them for what they are. 
Lies, idols, demons, L-I-D, lid. They put a lid on us and enslave us, right? They keep us captive and they don't have to. You're a voluntary captive. Jesus wants to change that. How does he do it? Uh, he has a solution. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God. That's that knowledge of God, that knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ is true knowledge. Gnosko, gnosis, this word knowledge means a functional, practical, personal knowledge. You can apply it in the real known world. It's useful. It's the thing that earlier you said, hey, God is, God's inspired word is equipping you with this knowledge. It's not fantasy. It's not, it's not imaginary. Though it is imaginative, it helps you see possibilities you hadn't seen before uh, to live your life in a way that uh, honors and glorifies Christ and blesses people. So that's God's solution. And the Bible reveals God's work. Look, John says, uh, uh, he, you know, he, he, he hears Jesus say to him in Revelation. He writes in Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, this is all fantasy talk from a wacky guy who's a pastor. And, which is true, <laughs> the second part, but the first part, it's not fantasy. This is a description of reality. The work of God is real and powerful. What do we do with it? Hey, I got an idea. Let's apply our theology. Let's take this content and make it a prayer. We're set free by God's work, so let's just acknowledge that in a prayer. I'm going to read a prayer I wrote this prayer. You can write your own version of this. Uh, it's just a theological expression of what I believe is biblical truth. And you can go back to the Bible and check every phrase out to make sure it's, it's not erroneous. But uh, rather than having ask you to pray it out loud, I'm going to read this prayer. And, and you can read it silently with me and make it your own. Lord Jesus, I come to you as my deliverer and protector. I believe that you are the Son of God. And you died for me and rose again from the dead. Does that sound like factual biblical content? Okay. So hang with me then in the, in the theology that emerges from this biblical content. By your word, I believe you love me unconditionally, and you accept me as your beloved child by faith. I acknowledge you as my Lord, and I gladly renounce all influences of Satan in my life. Lord, you know the issues and influences that oppress me, that harass me, that entice me, and enslave me. Your word and your spirit destroys these strongholds and sets me free. I confess all my sins to you. I repent of all my sins. I renounce my self-made idols and any form of the occult or idolatry in my life or in the life of my ancestors. I receive your grace by faith in your atoning sacrifice. I recognize your glorious reign over all things. I forgive anyone who has ever hurt me in any way. And I let go of any bitterness or resentment. I believe I'm saved by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, Satan has no rights to my spirit, soul, mind, or body. He is an accuser and a deceiver, and you have broken his power over me. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, I am saved and sanctified, set apart to God. Through his sacrifice, I am redeemed out of the hand of the devil and all the forces of evil. Lord Jesus, you said whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered, and I call upon you, Lord. Deliver me, sanctify me, protect me, and fill me with your Holy Spirit. I give you all glory and praise. In the name of Jesus Christ, I bind every evil spirit and evil influence in or around my life. In Jesus' name, I command them to go. I pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. See, this is not a human statement 
This is simply a declaration of reality, personalized and prayed. And so God sets you free to join him in his work. And you don't have to give Satan a thought. When you sin, confess your sin and, and receive God's forgiveness. When you err and you're receiving some rebuke or correction, humbly consider it, and if appropriate, receive it and repent. Find encouragement and restoration in God's word and through his Holy Spirit and, and among his people. You see the power of this? This is a community that, for which, uh, to whom Satan is absolutely irrelevant. We're aware of his power, his malevolent intent, and we say, the name of Jesus. And, and the Bible says, don't give the devil a foothold. Resist him and he will flee from you. Don't try to argue with him. Don't try to be cute with him or clever with him. Just say, I resist you in the name of Jesus by his authority. You have no topos in my life. You're not on my map. So this is, this is the why then. Why do we do all this? Because the Bible is our foundational text, not the only text you'll read or consider. But this is the one by which you measure and evaluate all other texts. This is the text by which you evaluate and measure all other texts. Because the Bible is our foundational text, we study it, but we don't worship a book. If you drop your Bible, you haven't committed a sin. If somebody grabs your Bible in anger and throws it down, you don't need to declare a fatwa on them. If you write your Bible, highlight it, underline it, uh, and then wear it out and have to get a new one, you don't have to wrap an American flag around it and bury it. <laughs> you just dispose of it, right? It's a book. We don't worship a book. We are people of the book worshiping God. The people of Israel were called Ha-Devarim, the people of the word, Devar, the word of God. We are people of the word. We're people of the book, but we worship the Lord. And so we believe that the Bible is a catalyst for spiritual growth because it contains life-changing truth. We take it seriously. It's the authoritative word of God. We're not called to edit it or to, or, or to try to uh, make it sound better or diminish the parts that we think might offend somebody. We simply say, this is the word of God. It's God's authority, and let's be humble and honest as we encounter it and try to understand how to receive it, interpret it correctly. And this has four personal implications, significant implications. The first is this. It is true knowledge from God that reveals God's character and will to us. Now, in a modern academy, this is not considered true knowledge. It's considered not knowledge. It's non-knowledge for the most part. But we consider it true knowledge, without which you're ill-informed, misinformed, uninformed, uh, and vulnerable. Because it reveals God's character and will to us. Secondly, it teaches us God's ways and thoughts and how to live wisely under God's authority. And of course, it tells us we can't do that on our own strength. We need the Holy Spirit. Three, it teaches us to adjust our life compass from magnetic north to true north. Uh, if you've ever used a map, which is a, a land-based topographical tool, or a chart, which is a, a water-based version, or an aeronautical chart, air-based, uh, you know that there is a true north, a place that you can say geographically is true north. There's also a magnetic north, which is not perfectly aligned with true north. And so every map requires you to make an adjustment, to add or subtract. So if you're backpacking and you're looking at your topographic map, you have to deal with, and you're using your compass, if you're going from your map to your compass, you need to subtract uh, a certain amount of degrees. So if you're in a nice area, you probably subtract eight degrees. 
you're in Oregon, I think it's 13 degrees. If you're going from the compass to the uh, siding, and I want to find it on the map, you've got to add that same number. If you don't do that, a trip to Hawaii becomes a trip to Fiji. <laughs> so you can imagine, a number of years ago, five of us are racing a sailboat from LA to Hawaii, and you can't use your engine, so you're just sailing, and, and every day you have to report to this fleet, the Transpac fleet, and say, hey, here's our position, and they tell you everybody else's position, and because of current wind and weather and all that, it's, it's, it's like playing three-dimensional chess, and some people say, hey, I think I'm gonna go this way and that way, so different strategies come out, but at some point, several days into the race, two-week race, you start to see the ships all kind of in the same general area. About three, four days in, we're noticing that our ship, we're making a unique bid for Alaska. And it's like, what, where are, how? And so we discovered that our dear navigator, super motivated, smart guy, um, did not understand the difference between magnetic north and true north. So to this day, uh, if you ask Bob Goff, <laughs> what is your most embarrassing moment? He'd go, well, I can't remember. Uh, but if you press me, I go, well, it was actually when I had to look at everybody on my boat and go, I had no idea that there was a difference between true north and magnetic north, and therefore, every other boat is there, and we are here. And we've got a lot of catching up to do. Uh, so the Bible helps us to say that my natural magnetic north is not consistent with God's true north. And so the word of God is constantly calling me back to true north, compensating for what I can't otherwise do but for Jesus and the Spirit of God. You get the, get the picture here? So what happens sometimes is when people start studying the Bible, they get inspired about their own knowledge of the Bible, and they start insinuating that everything they think and feel about the Bible and any application of the Bible is true north. This is why for all of us who study the Bible, who, which should be everybody, all of us doing theology should say, okay, am I checking this out so that I'm getting feedback that might correct my misperception? Because in my culture, I'm so immersed in it, I'm thinking, hey, slavery is good, otherwise I couldn't run my plantation. Why did Christians support slavery? Because they were gaming and rationalizing something that wasn't consistent with scripture, but trying to find and, and piecemeal and take things out of context and say, oh, it's okay, the Bible says it's fine. It was a misapplication of biblical truth. And it took some faithful people long enough to say, look, there's gotta be a better economic model, it'll be disruptive and hard, you can't have 2,000 people running your plantation anymore and not free to come and go and be paid and, right, get the whole point? So you see this magnetic true north thing is, again, part of the social impact of the gospel in us and, and through us. So it calls us to become disciples who assist others in becoming disciples. This is the big news. It's about being a disciple of Jesus. This church is a missional church, which means we are all about God's mission in the world and, and his disciples in it. This church will make no sense to you if you don't get that. If you think it's anything other or less than that, you'll be sorely disappointed with this church. This church does not uh, have as much concern about your comfort or preference as we do about this mission and our discipleship. Having said that, we believe that if we're on mission and we're aligned as disciples with Jesus, there's no more joyful, uh, happy, fun, laugh-filled place than the body of Christ, where people feel free, they're coming alive. They feel loved and accepted. They feel respected. They feel heard. Even if there's arguments and in, 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 you know, conflict, inevitably, in a marriage, in a family. If you're having a hard time in your family, don't be discouraged. It's probably the opportunity you have to grow. So this idea of being a disciple, 
who is assisting others in becoming a disciple ends up becoming part of our DNA. You can't contain it a program. There might be a lot of ways to get at that, but ultimately it's a way of seeing the world. Do you see yourself as a disciple? If not, until you see yourself as a disciple, none of this will make sense to you or be motivating to you. As soon as you accept the fact that I'm a disciple of Jesus, which is a larger category than what I do as my job, or my ethnicity, my gender, my, my family of origin, whatever. If you see yourself as a disciple, worlds open up, alignment comes into play, and instead of being fettered and restricted by that, you're set free. That's the theology that we see in the Word of God. And so are you ready for, for inspiring Bible study? Are you ready for this? Perhaps you're already doing it, keep doing it. If you're ready for more of it, maybe a fresh go at it, uh, read the Bible this year. And this is how I'm, I'm going to end with this. I hope you're reading the Bible. If you're not, uh, let this new year be an excuse to start a plan for reading the Bible. You've got to make a decision and a commitment on your calendar uh, it, it, during your day or your week to read the Bible. You might be a daily person. You might be an every other day person. Uh, you've got to make a commitment to figure out, when am I going to read the Word of God? And, and let this man be your guide. This kindly man. Uh, if any of you are attorneys, uh, you know this man's name. His name is F. Lagarde Smith. For all of us else, it's like, who cares? Right? F. Lagarde Smith, I've never heard of him. Uh, he was a professor at Pepperdine Law School and is one of the, still to this day, his work is some of the, the bedrock stuff about evidence in the legal profession. If you want to understand evidentiary philosophy and application, you, you can't avoid F. Lagarde Smith. He now lives in uh, Burford in the Cotswolds in this charming little bucolic village. And he, he writes, the big deal about why he's a good guide is that his father was a pastor who always wanted to write a chronological version of the Bible. Because the Bible you and I have in our hand is not chronological. That's why it's so confusing. And he said, well, okay, um, let's, let me write a chronological version. And so he took the NIV Bible. His father never got to achieve that goal. Uh, he said, well, I'm an attorney, but I'm really good at research. So I will take the NIV Bible. They've already done a good job translating it. I'll now do the research necessary to put it in chronological order. So when you're reading along and a psalm pops up, it's when the psalm was written, most likely. And so all of a sudden the Bible starts to read like a screenplay versus this you know, mishmash of, 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 of events. Uh, I, I have both these. I have the narrated hardcover one, I love it. It's just big and bulky, but it makes you look awesome. <laughs> My Bible, you know. Um, or not awesome. Um, but I like the Kindle one, and so I'm using the Kindle chronological order one this year, where it's 365 daily readings, and there'll be a little bit of commentary from F. Lagarde Smith, hey, this is what's going on here, and then you read it, and, and, and so start reading the Bible. If you have a plan already, you prefer, great. A, an okay plan is better than no plan. Any plan is better than no plan. I hope you're reading the Word of God and being inspired by it. Otherwise, you're gonna be a really uh, undeveloped disciple who will not have any clue how to disciple others. Will not find it attractive, but rather uh, unattractive to be part of God's vision because it will demand your life. And so Lord Jesus, that's my prayer for us, that we would become your disciples in a way that would give us life. And that your life in us and through us would give others life, would make an impact far beyond what we could ever expect or imagine. That, Lord, we'd be part of your mission in this world that is transforming it 
and will be um, ultimately uh, culminating in a new heaven and a new earth. May we be the people of your word, of your book, uh, inspired by it, motivated by it, nurtured, uh, uh, encouraged, and uh, developed by it. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Steve. What an inspiring sermon. It was really good, really focusing on the Bible. That's like our core tech. I just want to thank Michael Watson for being with us today. <laughs> Michael needs your prayers. He is a one month at home, one month old at home. <laughs> Congratulations. If you want to support Michael or if you want some more of his music out on our book table, we have some of his CDs. Go and check that out. But as the ushers come forward, this brings us to a time of tithes and offering. And this week, it, it kind of it kind of struck home as I got a, my giving letter from LJCC this month, uh, from this last year, and I opened it up. And the first thing I thought was, what a privilege, what an honor to be a part of a community, part of a light in the darkness, bringing the gospel of Jesus where it has not been before, letting people know that there's a safe place to go, that there's a loving Savior. And it's like, it, this is awesome opportunity. This is awesome privilege to be a part of that. And it's not just, a, it's just not something we do as an obligation. It's an act of worship. So let's continue our worship with song and giving. Let the King of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from, oh. Thank you. 
up. So when you feel like God is letting you down, maybe that's God preparing to lift you up in a new chapter of your life, a new stage of the journey. Trust in him. Turn to him. Look to him. Let him comfort you through his word. Let him support you through his people. Let him inspire you through a combination of both and his Holy Spirit. Because he wants to lift you up where you can see him and see your life and see the world from a whole new perspective. That you'd be inspired to be his disciple, helping others likewise to be disciples of Jesus. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord who loves you and me more than we can ask or imagine. Give us everything we need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him, both now and forevermore, one day at a time. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.